Have you been affected by the suicide death of a beloved friend or family member? If so, you're probably facing many unanswered questions. We hope to discuss some of them today. This is What My Son's Death by Suicide Taught Me About Life with your host, Marshall Adler. Marshall lost his own son, Matt, at the age of 32 and has since dedicated his life to talking to people who have also been affected by suicide. Now, here is Marshall Adler. Hello, I'd like to thank everybody so much for listening uh, to our very, very, very special show today. The reason it's a special show, it's actually a road show. I am sitting here at a beautiful veterans medical facility in Lake Nona, Florida, which is just south of Orlando, near the Orlando airport. And it is one of the most beautiful medical facilities I've ever seen in my life. And we have a very, very, very special guest. Janet Gates is the Suicide Prevention Coordinator for the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, Veterans Health Administration at the Orlando VA Medical Center. And one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to Janet today and have my audience listen to Janet talk about her job is that my father was a B-24 bombardier during World War II. He was actually in the U.S. Army Air Corps because the Air Force did not come into existence until 1947, I believe. So he was a member of the U.S. Army Air Corps, first lieutenant, and he passed away from Alzheimer's in 2012. But before that time, I took him to the precursor to this facility in Winter Park, Florida. And I will tell you that as a son of a U.S. Army veteran, I could not thank the VA administration more for the wonderful care, treatment, and respect they gave my father. My father was a member of the Jolly Roger Heavy Bomb Group, and they used to be called the best damn damn heavy bomb group in the world. And he used to have his Jolly Roger Heavy Bomb Group jacket on when when I took him to the VA clinic in Winter Park. And I was amazed how the doctors, the therapists, the other patients, all the administrators treated him with such respect. They called him Lieutenant, they called him Sir. My dad looked at them and goes, I've been out of the military for how many years? You don't need to do this. And it just really warmed my heart because they gave him the respect that obviously he deserved for the wonderful service he gave to this country in defeating uh, our enemies during World War II. So I really want to thank our special guest, Janet Gates, for being uh, a guest today. And I want to just introduce Janet's, uh, Janet to our audience. And what I'd like to do is, Janet, if you could just give the audience a background about your educational work history and uh, what your position here is so we can give them a background before we get into the uh, meat and bones of the interview. Sure. Thank you so much for having me today. And I'm so glad to hear that your father had a wonderful experience at the VA there in the Lake Baldwin Winter Park area. And I bet he got a lot of attention with that jacket. How special. So um, my name is Janet Gates, like you said, and I graduated with my master's in social work from the University of South Carolina. So I'm a big Gamecock fan. Uh, I've got a history of working in the mental health field, and I've been at the VA specifically nine years. Um, I started at the VA in South Carolina, transferred down here to the VA in Orlando, and I've been engaging veterans in therapy, both individual work and group therapy work using the evidence-based treatments that we have. And for the last almost two years, I've been our suicide prevention coordinator covering the six counties that Corporate Orlando covers and uh, working, coordinating the program where we do our best to get the word out there, talk about suicide, reduce the stigma, open up the conversation, and do what we can to help the veterans get connected and uh, get the services that they need, much like your dad was doing. Come to the VA, get the treatment, and improve the quality of life. How many people do you actually work with on a daily basis? So the team, the suicide prevention team that I work with, we have a team of 10. So there's me plus nine others. 
and we're serving almost 120,000 veterans at the Orlando VA Medical Center. How would somebody come to get your service versus the, all the other services the VA Medical Center has to offer? Well, it is definitely a team approach, and I applaud the VA for taking uh, the stance that suicide prevention is everyone's business. This is a public health issue. It is not a mental health issue. So anybody can be struggling with thoughts of suicide, and the VA has recognized that. So we are really working together as a facility where the providers in any of the clinics where the veterans are receiving treatment, they're engaging the veterans in conversation. They're assessing the veterans and asking the questions, the tough ones. You know, are you having thoughts of harming yourself? Are you having thoughts of suicide? And when those answers are yes and further assessment is needed, we absolutely provide those services. And the veterans are referred to, to me and, and my program, the suicide prevention program that we have here so that our team can provide the additional support and resources that are needed. So how many outside facilities feed this facility in the six county area? Do you know how many? We have uh, facilities in Kissimmee, Tavares, Claremont, um, the Lake Baldwin location, we probably have six, seven different, maybe eight, if we count them all total, from Claremont to Varys, Kissimmee, um, Vieira, Daytona, Deltona. That's I'm sure area. I'm forgetting somewhere. <laughs> the six different counties that we have. So there are like eight different facilities. Wow. So basically, you have 120,000 potential veterans who could use your services and you have to have all these different veterans screened appropriately like yes let me ask you this what type of training has the VA given to those screeners to be able to accurately assess if somebody actually would be a potential suicide risk well the VA has taken on the challenge of providing education to all the staff who would be asking those questions and it's either an in-person training or an online training or a combination thereof and the assessments that we're using are standardized, so the same questions are being asked at any one of the facilities that a veteran receives treatment, whether it's here in Florida or halfway across the country. And the questions are very straightforward, and it's, um, it begins with the yes or no questions, so they don't have to get real in-depth. They can make it simple, so even folks who are not trained in mental health assessments, they can still be asking those questions. Where would it go from, say, a veteran comes in to an administrative person and says, I'm suicidal. And that administrative person, obviously with no medical background, mm -hmm. has now that responsibility to take that answer that obviously is a threat for suicide. Where would it go up the chain of command from there? Well, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to stay with that veteran. They are not going to leave that veteran alone. So somebody will remain with that veteran, talk to that veteran, and go with that veteran to, depending on like where they are, are they going to go to the emergency department? Are they going to go over to the mental health clinic? Are they going to call 911 if they're out in the community and we're doing one of the outreach events that we do? Like it, it kind of depends on where they are, but the bottom line is, from the administration all the way down, it does not matter. We are all trained to know, do not leave that veteran alone. Stay with them until the professionals get there to provide the care that that vet veteran needs. That's great. What would happen from that standpoint? Does, would they go to a medical doctor? Would they go to a social worker? Like, what, what would be the next step from the administrative person being with that veteran? The handoff would go to who next in the line of, of, of command? If we're... Speaking like here at the medical facility, if we're in a position during, let's say, normal business hours and our mental health clinic is open, then that administrator may walk that veteran down to our mental health clinic where they can be assessed by one of the mental health providers there. If it's not, they may go down to the emergency department where we have medical teams. We've got doctors, nurses, social workers who are trained to do those assessments and take them to the emergency department where they can be further assessed there. At that point, I assume a psychiatrist, is a psychiatrist always on call at the VA where a psychiatrist would be able to take the care from the standpoint of the lay people, seeing the assessment, and then saying mm -hmm. this person is, is at risk? Is there somebody always on call from a psychiatric standpoint so here? 
it could be a psychiatrist. It could also be a social worker. It could also be a psychologist. So all those disciplines are trained on how to do those assessments appropriately, all the way up to deciding whether or not that veteran needs to be hospitalized for his or her own safety. So there's somebody available at the hospital. It may not necessarily be a psychiatrist, but there's somebody available who can do that assessment all the time. I know in Florida, it's called the Baker Act. Mm -hmm. Other states have different names for it. When somebody is a deemed to be a threat to themselves or a threat to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And in Florida, I believe it's a 72-hour hold. After that, you would need a psychiatrist to continue to have that person uh, held. Is that something that would be done here or would that be referred out to a local hospital if, in fact, somebody is such a risk for suicide that the Baker Act is deemed to be appropriate? Mm-hmm. So we do have – we do have the ability to Baker Act here. If, if that is needed, then we can um, involuntarily hospitalize folks if that's what's required. We have an inpatient unit here at Lake Nona. We also partner with some of the agencies out in the community. Um, so if we, if we need to send a veteran out, we can do that and ensure that they get the care that they need. We can hospitalize them here at our facility as well. That's fantastic. So basically, this is almost a city unto itself, seriously, where somebody come in from looking for whatever benefits they need from the uh, medical center here and and end Mm -hmm. up getting potentially life-saving treatment. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is um, the most complex healthcare system that I'm aware of. I do not know of any other healthcare system that offers as many services under one roof as the VA. That's amazing because I tell you, my father had uh, Alzheimer's and obviously as his condition deteriorated, the neurological treatment increased because his cognitive functioning was, he was getting neurological deficit from Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And again, I was amazed how the VA was able to monitor him and help him. Obviously, there was no cure. There was not something that they could do to stop this, but they made um, my dad feel honored and Respected. I know a lot of Alzheimer's patients can get very um, argumentative and difficult. My dad, which is the happiest guy in the world, in fact, the last part of his life, he never knew they had Alzheimer's. And he used to, he was taking the VA and he would tell a joke like that uh, doctors would say, Lieutenant Adler, how are you feeling? He goes, feeling pretty good today. And they go, well, what are you doing? He goes, I'm try-, and he was, my dad would say, I'm trying to keep Al away. And the doctors look, well, Who's Al? Who, who are you trying to keep away? Why are you trying to keep Al away? My dad say, I'm trying to keep Al Heimer's away. It was a joke. <laughs> and the doctors were looking at him. Well, he's pretty sharp there. there you go. He's got a good sense of humor. Absolutely. He's like telling a joke about Alzheimer's. And they sort of use that as part of their cognitive assessment. Absolutely. And it was nice seeing that they gave him respect. They weren't impatient, they weren't uh, nasty, and it was just, you know, I I knew what my dad was going to say because I heard the joke a million times, but these doctors didn't. And it was nice to see, so again, from a firsthand standpoint, as the son of a patient from the uh, uh, care that he's got from the VA, it was a very, very, very nice thing to see. And I really appreciate the help that uh, you gave my dad and the veterans that you're serving today. I unfortunately had to take a very quick break because I've really got some more in-depth, serious questions to Mm -hmm. ask uh, after this break. So again, I want to thank the audience so much for listening. And I want to thank Janet for being so kind to... uh, be our guest today. And after this very short break, I want to specifically ask Janet concerning some of the issues with the very high suicide rate among our veterans. And so we'll be right back after the short message. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be right back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned into What My Son's Death by Suicide Taught Me About Life. If you'd like to send Marshall Adler a question or comment that can be addressed privately or on a future program, please send an email to marshalontheradio at gmail.com. That's marshalontheradio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. Okay, we're right back. Uh, Again, thank you so much for listening. And what I want to do is I have seen some statistics that are very alarming, obviously concerning the suicide rate in this country, not just for society as a whole, but for veterans in particular. And the numbers that I've seen nationwide shows that the suicide rate for veterans is about 20 a day, which is almost one an hour. Based on your knowledge, are those statistics nationwide accurate? Those are fairly accurate. Of of those 20, I do want to point out that 14 of those 20 are not connected with VA care. So that's one of the reasons why we do shows like this. And I'm so grateful that you've invited me to be a part of this podcast so we can get the word out there because we want to be able to get those 14 into care because we know that the treatment works. But um, sadly, 20 a day is uh, the most recent statistic. What type of, is there an outreach program to try to get those other 70% into the system where they hopefully can get care and hopefully save their lives? We do have outreach efforts. Uh, All of the VAs across the country have a suicide prevention coordinator and a suicide prevention team like we have here in Orlando. So all of the VAs are engaged in reaching out to their communities where we go to various um, activities and events that may be veteran focused. They may be just community at large focused because we know that veterans are out in the community. So it may not be specific for veterans, but we'll go to parades, we'll go to concerts, we'll go to local libraries, we'll go to schools and universities, we'll go to VFW halls. Um, Anybody that will listen to us, basically, we get out there, we spread the message, we talk about suicide prevention, we talk about the veterans crisis line, the number that we'll share in a little bit, I'm sure. Um, But we want to be able to get the message out there that the VA does provide excellent care, Um, at least as good, if not better, than anything that they can receive out in the community, and how can we get them connected with VA care so that we can improve the quality of life for folks. So, yes, we do outreach efforts all across the country. It's great to hear because, obviously, the listeners to this podcast know that my son, Matt, passed away on July 22nd, 2018, age 32. And obviously I was not as involved in the suicide analysis of what's happening in our society 
before that date as I have been afterwards. And the one thing that has amazed me with the suicide crisis is how our best and our brightest are so at risk. I've, I've been specifically since Matt's passing been looking at multiple news stories concerning suicide. Um, for example, I know that there is a horrific crisis among police officers in general. And I, I know for in, in New York City, it's obviously New York City is a huge media capital. Mm-hmm. They've had, I believe, 10 active and total 12 active and inactive police officer suicides this year or only in October. Right. Apparently, it's usually maybe two or three a year. So they're three or four times higher than they usually have. And they can't figure out why that is. And I, before the interview today, I mentioned that I just happened to read a article in a paper yesterday that unfortunately there was a young man, a West Point cadet, that I believe was 20 years old, that had committed suicide. And my question to you is based on your experience, you're obviously a very educated, very intelligent person, but you're also literally and figuratively in the trenches here dealing with veteran suicide. Why would this demographic group have such a high, higher proportional rate of suicide than others? Because it seems these people are police, are veterans, are the best and the brightest who are taking care of others. So why can't they take care of themselves? And I really wish that there was one simple answer to that. Unfortunately, it's, there, there isn't one specific answer or one simple answer. Uh, the topic of suicide, it's a, a very complex topic and there are lots of different factors involved. And um, specifically with the veterans and with the first responders that you mentioned, the law enforcement officers in New York, these are high stress positions, high stress jobs. And with that, um, they're the caregivers, they're the protectors of others, and they have a lot of responsibility on their shoulders. And sadly, there's a huge stigma in our country in general about reaching out for help, about acknowledging that you're struggling, you're having problems, and you need help. It is very difficult to ask for help particularly for the population who are supposed to be the strong ones, and I'm using air quotes for the folks who can't, can't see me right now. Um, so I think as a country, as a whole, we have to work on reducing the stigma, and we have to open up the conversation, and we have to be willing to talk about how it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to acknowledge that you're struggling with whatever your struggle is because we all have struggles all of us, where everybody's facing something. So that is a country as a whole we need to work on. But the the first responders that you mentioned and the veterans, they're also exposed to things that other folks in the country may not be. They're exposed to various traumas. They're exposed to high stress situations. They're exposed to things that the rest of us um, in the country may not be exposed to. And so having to deal with that and having to work through that is going to be different for everybody. Um, you mentioned your dad being a veteran and being in World War II. He could have served right alongside somebody else in the exact same battle, but had two different reactions because they're two different people with two different backgrounds. So we need to keep in mind that not everybody deals with the situation in the same way. So we need to be able to reduce the stigma, open up the conversation, recognize that the folks who are struggling have... Um, seen things or done things that the rest of us may not have done. And if they're not willing to open up or they're not able to ask for help, they may be fighting their own battles, either working through uh, substance abuse issues. Maybe they're trying to self-medicate. Maybe they're um, looking for other ways to deal with the, the horrors that they've seen or the traumas they've been exposed to. 
um, which leads to all kinds of other problems as well, relationship issues, financial issues. Uh, so our veterans coming back from deployments, you know, trying to fit back into society. And there's a difference between, you know, the National Guard Reserve folks and those who are active duty. What kind of support do they have when they come back? It's a, a very complex issue. And I think that um, a lot of times what folks are struggling with is that lack of connection, that lack of brotherhood. When somebody is serving and they have their brothers and sisters in arms with them and then suddenly they're not in the military anymore, are they still connected? Are they coming to the VA so they can be around other veterans and still have that sense of brotherhood and connection? Or are they isolating and are they separating themselves from family and friends? Um, a lot of the veterans that we see, particularly here in Central Florida, we have a large university and some of our veterans are, you know, choosing to go back to school. Well, they may not be connecting with those students in the same way. If those students, you know, graduated high school and went straight on into college, they don't have the same life experience as the veteran who, you know, joined the military right after high school and got deployed and experienced the world on a larger level and now trying to fit into the classroom. They may not have that, that sense of connection and community. So that is part of the issue. And uh, feeling like a burden is another huge um, situation that folks are, are struggling with when you've got the older population who they're fighting their own medical issues and health issues and, you know, feeling like a, a burden to their families. But then also the younger folks who are, are coming back from deployments with different issues, whether it's medical or mental health issues and just not fitting in, are they feeling like a burden to their family and their friends? And um, these are some of the things that folks who describe having suicidal thoughts and or engaging in suicidal behaviors, they all have in common, that, that lack of connection, that feeling like a burden, and then just the general hopelessness that things are not going to get any better. It's interesting. You brought some really good points. And again, being the news how that I am, I brought another article that I sort of want to relate to. There was an article that the suicide rate among young Americans has soared by 50%, 5-0 in the last 10 years. And my question that I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to give you some background about my father, is it seems to be almost a generational differentiation in the suicide rate. And let me just tell you what I'm talking about. My father, as I mentioned, was a B-24 bombardier during World War II. And I just want to give you and the audience some background that my dad told me. And these were all stories that I know my whole life. My father was supposed to be a navigator. And he was trained with his crew to go fight the Nazis in the European theater. The day before he was to go to deploy to go to England to get ready to fight the Nazis, his commanding officer pulled him and said, Merwin, his name was Merwin, M-E-R-W-I-N, the name you never heard from anybody else in the world, but that was his name. He said, Merwin, you're not going to Europe to fight the Nazis, and you're not gonna be a navigator. We're gonna make you a radar bombardier. We're gonna send you to the Pacific to fight the Japanese. And so he trained with his crew the entire basic training and was ready to go, became close to these guys, wished them luck, and he goes, okay, I guess I got him having a different experience here. They all left to go to England, and what happened is that their plane crashed and they all died. If he wasn't pulled from that plane, I wouldn't be here because he wouldn't be there. He would, have, he would have passed away. He then, during his deployment in the South Pacific he used to write his father, my grandfather, asking about one of his cousins because he knew his cousin was in the South Pacific. And he said that he saw a lot of death, obviously dealing with World War II, but he saw a very small plane in the Pacific theater. They had small islands since he was a member of the Army Air Corps. He would get a island away from the Japanese. They'd build a runway to go bomb further close to Japan and kept mm -hmm. it was called island hopping, try to get close to the mainland as possible. Mm -hmm. And they had a, uh, he saw a one person, very small plane, he called it a grasshopper. It was a very small little plane. It was grass, to jumping between the islands. And he saw the pilot came in too steep and the nose of the plane hit 
huge fireball, and obviously the pilot was killed. My father kept on writing his father about his cousin and asked, where is he, how is he doing? And my grandfather kept telling him, don't worry about your cousin, just take care of yourself. After my father came back, he found out that the reason his father told him this was that his cousin was already dead. And he told him how he died, where he died, and when he died. And my father told his father that he was there, he saw it. He was the guy, his cousin was in that little plane that my father saw come in too steep, the nose hit, called the big fireball. Oh, wow. He didn't know it at the time. After he came back to Buffalo after the war, he realized he saw his cousin, two kids from Buffalo, New York, on a speck of dirt in the South Pacific. He happened to see his cousin die. And after my father came back, he obviously married my mother and started a family, and he lost two children. I had two brothers die. Mm. Uh, I don't remember either one of them. They were both uh, very young when they died. One was younger than me, one was older than me. But you look at those stressors, having his crew, he trained with dying in a plane crash right after the day after he was pulled, seeing his cousin die right in front of his eyes, not knowing it until after he came back, and losing two children. You could see how that could be a factor in somebody's mental health. But my dad, for whatever reason, was the happiest guy his entire life. And I, I sort of say this comically, but it, it just sort of shows you he talked about his war experiences a lot. And at the end of his life, he turned to me, he goes, you know, World War II was sort of fun. And I looked at him, I go, Dad, you're the only person in the history of mankind that said World War II was a lot of fun. What he meant was that he had a lot of friends. Mm -hmm. He traveled throughout the world, didn't have a scratch on him. He was a bombardier and didn't have a scratch on him. And I know what he meant, but that was his attitude. Mm -hmm. And so was this a generational differentiation that is happening because so many of my father's friends were also World War II veterans. Mm -hmm. And they all seemed like a well-adjusted group of guys that they never talked about their efforts saving the world as being a big deal. Mm -hmm. They never really seemed to have an adverse effect of obviously the horrors of war. And I'm trying to figure out why that is. So, and that's a real tough question I'm going to ask you, but unfortunately we've got to take a quick break to come back right on at the, uh, these few words. So please appreciate you listening. And I really am interested in what Janet has to say after we come back from the break concerning my question about the generational difference with veterans from my dad's age in World War II to obviously the veterans from the Gulf Wars that, that, uh, the suicide rate is just dramatically higher. So again, thank you so much for listening and we'll be right back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned into What My Son's Death by Suicide Taught Me About Life. If you'd like to send Marshall Adler a question or comment that can be addressed privately or on a future program, please send an email to marshalontheradio at gmail.com. That's marshalontheradio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. Thank you so much for listening, and I really am going to be interested in how Janet asked the que- answered the question that I asked before the break, because it's just something that I don't know the answer to that. And so I'm sort of putting Janet on the spot here, <laughs> and she's got a big smile on her face because she's yeah. a nice person. So had you noticed a generational difference? And if you have, what are your thoughts? Why is it generationally different? Well, you're definitely asking some tough questions today, so um, I give you props for that. As far as some of the generational differences, um, you know, I can tell you some of the things that we know are different is there were, um, uh, there was a higher percentage of the population serving during World War II than there is currently um, in these wars. So going back to what I was saying about the sense of belonging, you know, there was just there were, there were more folks there. There was, you know, a, a greater percentage of the population, so there was more connectedness than, than what we have today. Um, but there was also the, you know, when folks are coming back and just connection in general in the community than what we see today. You know, um, I, I know about in my growing up, and I'm not the age of your father, but um, at least when I was growing up, there was that sense of community. And if I was out playing and I misbehaved, well, the you know family down the street, the mother or father in the family was welcome to discipline me and and correct any behavior that you know I had going to church and you know getting the message there from uh, the services and connection with other family members or you know just being connected with family in general, hanging out with cousins and aunts and uncles. There's a sense of family and connection in that regard, whereas in today's society, we don't have that same level of connection. Um, you know, folks may not even know who their next door neighbors are. They may recognize them by face, but may never have, you know, introduced themselves or walked into their homes, much less, um, you know, getting together for cookouts or the kids playing together, the sense of families, folks living all over the country and or all over the world. So I think there's the difference in in that regard as well. And both of those are contributing factors to suicide, just not having that level of connection. So do I think that that might be part of it? Maybe, Um, you know, in my humble opinion, I think that that makes a difference. Um, But as far as the suicide rates, we, we do see that the older population struggles as well, back to that sense of you know, feeling like a burden. And I'm not saying that they are a burden. I'm saying sometimes they feel like they are a burden. They are thinking that they are a burden to their families. Um, so I think that plays a role in the suicide rates. It's interesting you mention that because uh, I recently went to Israel and I have a cousin of mine who unfortunately passed away at age 37. He had three children and they all moved to Israel and he died 18 years ago and his youngest son was three years old when he passed away. Three plus 18 is 21. Mm -hmm. He's now a 21 year old soldier in the Israeli Defense Forces and we met in Israel we saw my cousin, three children, all live in Israel now. And in Israel, men and women have to serve in the military. I think it's three years for men and two years for women. And the one thing that I noticed is that everybody does have a sense of community. 
and they say we, not us or you, it's we. And what you mentioned about the sense of community with World War II, where obviously everybody did serve. Mm-hmm. My dad uh, volunteered and finished college in 43, and he was in there for 43, 44, and 45, three years in the military. And my dad, I'll just, again, give you some background. My dad literally was the nicest, kindest, and most nonviolent person I've ever met. I mean, it's ironic that I view him as a war hero, but in so many ways, he was a pacifist. He just was this sweet, gentle guy, but he knew we have to defeat our enemies during World War II, and, you know, won't get too personal here, but I will. Uh, I'm Jewish, and obviously the threat of Nazism was going to end the Jewish religion as we know it. So although my father was this kind, gentle, literally pacifist, he knew he volunteered to put his life on the line Mm -hmm. to defeat this enemy that was going to do potentially end civilization. And so I almost wonder if as a society, we should be looking to be more inclusive with service somehow because your point was excellent about the World War II veterans. And then just based on my recent experience in Israel, I can just see that there is a we-ism mm-hmm. as, a mo- as opposed to us versus them-ism, mm-hmm. which is good for society, but also might be good for mental health reasons. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Well, I, I agree that we all need to have that sense of connection and we need to have that sense of community, whatever that community happens to be. And I think the VA has done an excellent job in recognizing the importance of that and has taken an approach to be inclusive. Um, We recognize men and women are serving. So we focus services specifically for the female population. Um, But we have the we-ism, if you will, here at the VA where we have peer support specialists, where folks who have served and have needed help, whatever that help was, and are now giving back to the other veterans and helping them to to be included in care and be included in this community. We have veterans that come to the hospital and they just hang out all day because they feel at home here. They are welcomed and they want to be here for their brothers and sisters and it's, it's home for them. We have services that help with almost every issue that a veteran is facing so that we can help them get connected in the communities. We have, housing, we have support for finding employment, we have whole health treatments where we look at the mind, the body, the soul, the connection, we have chaplain services, we want to get folks connected out in the community so there is that sense of we, instead of working in silos, instead of having us versus them, um, we want to be able to have wraparound treatment uh, for the individual veteran with whatever he or she needs so that we can get them connected with not only the care, but how do we get them connected again with their families and with the communities and get more involved instead of that separation, that connection, that, that disconnect. How do we, how do we work through that? So we partner with different organizations in the community and help the veterans to um, be involved in the community, but also how the community can welcome the veteran population in. So there is that all-inclusive idea instead of the isolation. It's interesting because, you know, so much of suicide, I've, I've used this analogy before that everybody knows the Titanic was destroyed by an iceberg. Icebergs are only 10% above the waterline. Mm-hmm. The 10% above the waterline is not what destroyed the Titanic. It was the 90% below the waterline that they couldn't see mm-hmm. is what destroyed the Titanic. And I think with suicide, it's sort of similar because mm-hmm. I've seen so many 
not just stories in the newspaper about, you know, Anthony Bourdain or Robin Williams or Kate Spade, these people that on the outside, the 10% above the waterline saying, you know, who wouldn't want to live Anthony Bourdain's life? CNN is paying him all this money to travel around the world, do these incredible shows, eating wonderful food. And he took his life by suicide mm-hmm. on one of those wonderful trips. And obviously it wasn't the 10% above the waterline that we all saw was the reason he committed suicide. It was the 90% below the waterline that we couldn't see. Right. So I wonder, I've heard people say different things that unfortunately, as we're talking to a machine here that you and I are talking to at a computer, that so many of human interaction today with younger people is through machines, through texting, emails, social media versus direct human connection. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in your thoughts about that. Like, what do you think about the 90% below the waterline analogy that I think is applicable to suicides? And what, as a society in general, and in veterans for particular, can we do about it? So I, I really like your analogy, actually, with the iceberg, with the 10% above the waterline and the 90% underneath. When somebody is dealing with suicidal thoughts and they're struggling um, in that regard, they may be showing the world that 10%. Um, you know, for your listeners out there, you know, have you ever smiled on the outside, but on the inside, you're feeling something else. You know, that happens. Um, folks are, are dealing with different things, different thoughts, different emotions. And it's really important that we take the time to make that human connection. And it can be on the smallest level. It can be with the person you're passing in the hallway. It can be with the clerk at the store. It can be with your, your siblings, your family members, your neighbor. Take the time to make eye contact. Take the time to say hello. Take the time when you see that something has changed with the individual that you're familiar with. You recognize that they're um, angry more often than they used to be or they're more depressed or they used to hang out with the group of people that they're not hanging out with anymore. Maybe they used to all get together for lunch. Maybe they would get together on weekends, but this one person has pulled away from the group. Take the time to ask about that. Everybody can do that. It does not have to be a mental health professional. It does not have to be a psychiatrist or a social worker. It doesn't have to be um, somebody else in their life. It's you. It's your responsibility. If you are seeing that change, take the time to connect with that person and truly ask, how are you? Recognize what you've noticed. I see that you're not, you know, hanging out with us at lunch anymore. You seem to be more depressed than you used to be. Um, you know, every time I see you, you tell me that you haven't been sleeping well lately. Like, you know, what's going on? How can I help you? Take the time to make the connection because that is what matters. And when we ask someone how they're doing and we're really listening, if you hear that that person is struggling, if they're telling you, making statements like, well, you know, things are never going to get any better or nobody would miss me if I wasn't here anymore. If you're hearing some of those red flags, it's okay to ask the question. And it can be a really difficult question to ask, but it's okay to ask. Are you having thoughts of suicide? I've heard, you know, other people struggling with those same situations. I've heard that they've had thoughts of suicide. Is that something that you're dealing with? Putting that welcome mat out there to have the conversation. If somebody's not thinking about suicide, they're not suddenly going to start thinking about it. You didn't just put the thought in their head any more than if I ask you if you're having, you know, cardiac issues or heart trouble, that you're suddenly going to develop angina because I asked that question. What it's doing is opening up the conversation so that person can tell you, yes, I have had a hard time. So we need to take the time as a society, as a whole, to reach out to each other and to be there for each other. We have to be there for each other. That is absolutely wonderful advice that I think can and hopefully will save lives because, we, as I mentioned before, we're just losing the best and the brightest. And as a society, we all have to realize we're all 
part of the potential mm-hmm. solution. Absolutely. And I can tell you from personal experience, suicide could hit any family. And if I was listening to this podcast two years ago, I would say, oh, I feel so sorry for that Marshall Adler. He lost his son. Thank God that didn't happen to our family. And sleep well that night that knowing that it didn't. But it was going to happen. We just didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what we as a society have to realize that whatever we're doing is not working attacking this epidemic. And what you said and the recommendations you made were fantastic. And again, I just want to thank you for all the care and kindness you give to our veterans. And I think the words of wisdom you gave today are not only applicable to our veterans, but applicable to all of us in our society. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a hopefully a path that we can all start together to fight this epidemic. So again, Janet, I cannot thank you enough for being a guest today. And unfortunately, we're running out of time. I could stay here and talk to you for hours because you've got a lot of excellent advice and excellent insight because again, you are in the trenches. You are dealing with this on a daily basis. And I think you've got a unique uh, academic and real world experience that is invaluable for us in society to hear that. So I cannot thank you enough for um, being so kind to give this uh, interview today. And unfortunately, unfortunately, we're gonna run out of time today, but I do want to tell the audience that um, if anybody is struggling, please contact a medical or mental health specialist expert as soon as possible. Call 911 if warranted or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. And again, uh, I'd like to thank Janet so much for being a guest today, but also I'd like to thank her for taking care of our veterans and doing the good work that she's doing. So Janet, thank you very much. Thank you so much, and thank you for sharing that number, the 1-800-273-8255. If you're a veteran or know a veteran, press one. That'll get you connected with the closest VA center. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, and I'd like to thank the audience for listening to this very interesting, insightful discussion I had with Janet, and uh, we'll talk to you next week again. Thank you so much for listening, and have a good week. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to What My Son's Death by Suicide Taught Me About Life. We hope we've given you some insight concerning the issues of surviving and thriving after the suicide death of a loved one during our program today. Please join your host, Marshall Adler, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope you have a good week.